Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our next-gen pastor, Myron Jellison, for this week's message. Hey everyone, pumped that you're with us, watching on YouTube or Facebook or church at home, sitting in a living room or on the podcast while you're driving, wherever you're consuming it, special shout out to our East Wheeling campus, the Hearts of Hope, the Hands of God campus down there, pumped you're tuning in and and worshiping and being with us today. And so we're continuing our study of Jesus, his life through the book of Mark, and it has gotten really intense the past couple weeks. Chris, incredible message about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, kind of kicking off the most important week in human history. We refer to this week that that we're going to study for the next month or so, Holy Week, and and churches hold on to that and that language, and this is maybe the most significant week ever to happen on the face of the planet in all of human history. And so Jesus comes into the, the city of Jerusalem on the donkey, and they're laying down palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna. Here comes the king, uh, you know, and, and this incredible uh, parade unfolds. And then he walks into the temple and he just kind of looks around and he leaves. And he goes and, and sits out or camps outside the town. And the next day he comes in. And Jen last week unpacked where he, he wanted some, some figs and he saw a fig tree and leaf. And when you see a fig tree and leaf, even if it's not the season for figs, there should be some type of edible food on it. He goes up and says it's empty. He curses it. Everyone's like, oh my gosh. And then Jesus goes into the temple back to where he just went the day before and mic dropped because he didn't say anything. And he flips tables and chairs. It looks like it's a Snickers commercial. Like, Jesus, you ain't you when you're hungry. Like he didn't get them figs on the way in. But Jen beautifully unpacked that he wasn't hangry. He wasn't throwing a temper tantrum. He was being the righteous judge, holy God that he is. And, and just bringing some like clarity of like, you guys have messed this thing up. You should have been a light, a hope, a beacon, a people set apart. And you've kind of missed it. And so then he, he does that. He flips the tables and chairs and he starts to teach them for the rest of the day. And then he goes back out of the city to camp again because he has nowhere to stay in the city because there's so many people there because it's Passover and they're celebrating their, their Independence Day basically from the, the captivity in Egypt. And there's so many people. He stays outside the city and, then, and he's coming back. And he's coming back in today. And that's where we pick up. So that's a quick synopsis of the last couple of weeks. And here we are, Jesus coming back into the city during this week called Holy Week that we call it. And he's going back to the temple to have an interaction with the religious elite. Let's pick it up. Mark 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Now, I'm sure the disciples probably on high alert. Like if you remember when we were talking a few weeks back through this series, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem to where we are now. And he tells his disciples three different times, hey, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious elite, they're the ones who are going to beat me, flog me, and ultimately crucify me. And so when they see this group of people having an interaction with Jesus in the temple, they might be thinking, okay, is he serious? Like, is this about where it's going to go down? How's this going to happen? Like, these people are right here in front of him right now. And you see the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders are called the Sanhedrin. They are about 70, they are 70 elders that make up this group, and they are the supreme court of the nation. Not just judicially, but morally, ethically, spiritually, 
They are the highest power, the highest authority in the land, in the nation of Israel. And yesterday, Jesus came into their headquarters, their temple, and flipped over tables and chairs and told them how it was. And so now they probably spent the whole entire night on Zoom, like, okay, all right, how are we going to get this guy next day? Like, okay, they're probably just sitting around fires or candles or lanterns, but they're having probably meetings like, okay, how are we going to get this guy? And they show up all power, all authority, the highest authority in the known land, in the capital city, in the headquarters, where they, their stomping grounds. And the, the disciples are probably thinking, man, is this, is this really going to happen? Is this really going to go down? The way Jesus said three times it was going to go down. And so this group asks him a question, verse 28. By what authority do you do these things? I'm sure they're, they're uh, kind of uh, referencing yesterday. Like, who gives you the right to come in and do what you did? And I'm sure they're referencing like all of his teachings and all of his miracles. Like, what authority do you do these things? And they asked, and what, oh, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This is wild. Jesus, you ever heard of a Jesus juke? He jukes people all the time. Like they ask him a question or they want to do something. He's like, whoop, sideswipe, not going to do it. I'm going to ask you something. I'm going to take this a different direction than what you intended. He Jesus jukes him and I love it. And it's kind of like this. They asked him the highest authority, the highest power. Say, Jesus, answer our question. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm not going to do it. It'd be like you getting summoned to the Supreme Court of the United States of America, the highest court in the land. You're there to testify. Put your hand on the Bible. I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth, the truth, so help me God. And the judges ask you a question. You go, no, judge, I'm asking you a question first. If you answer my question and then I'll answer your question, you don't do that unless you are a higher authority than that authority that asked you the question. You don't say that. You don't, you don't do that. You don't disrespect or you don't not answer when asked unless you are a higher authority, both spiritually, morally, ethically, uh, and, uh, uh, than they are, spiritually, judicially, morally, or ethically in the land. And I'm sure these guys, after what happened yesterday, had lots of conversation. We got to get this guy out of here. We got to. We got to find some dirt on him. We got to find a way to trap him because there is an influx of people here for Passover. The crowd loves him. Look at the parade he just had. We heard the echoes reverberating through our streets and he shows up and does this in our temple. We got to get rid of him. We got to turn the masses on him. So let's find a way to trap him. And they, they connived this question that they thought would trap him. But Jesus says, Juke, not going to do it. They asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, I'll ask you a question. Answer me, then I'll tell you. And the question Jesus comes back at them with in verse 30 says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or, from, or of human origin? Tell me. So they discussed it among themselves. I picture family feud kind of hanging out. Like the, the family's over here huddled up, like looking over like, okay, what are we gonna say? What are we, gonna, we got an answer ready for this? I can't believe this guy came back with this. They're huddled up. They're like, okay, if we say from heaven, he will ask us, why didn't you believe? him. But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They're in a tough spot. These religious leaders are in a tough spot. Here's what's at play. The city 
is, is swarm with people, an influx of people, chanting his name, wanting him to do this political revolution. He has a following. The mass of people love him. And, and then he pins it on them like, okay, they love John the Baptist too because he was the one that kind of paved the way and pointed to you, the Messiah, and he even baptized you and all of that. So if we say that John's power that he came in was from heaven, well, then we have to accept you, Jesus, as the Messiah because he baptized you and made that declaration. And if they do that, then, then the Sanhedrin, those religious elite have to give up their authority, their power, their wants, their desires, their control that they love and give it over to Jesus when it's due him. And they don't like that. So they don't want to answer by heaven. But if they answer from man, then they're going to have the masses who say, we love John. He was a prophet. How dare you speak against him? And they're like, okay, we're in a tough spot. We don't know. And Jesus humiliates, I think, this group of people who claim to have all spiritual authority and they can't answer what about spiritual authority when it comes to John and him or even Jesus and their authority. You see, because they loved John, he paved the way, he baptized Jesus, heaven opened up and spoke, this is my son. They threw him in jail. They had too much to drink at a party. They chopped John's head off because he spoke out against Herod's uh, immoral sexual behavior with his brother's wife of marrying her. And he stood up against the oppressive Roman government. And the people loved John and called him a prophet. And they knew that they couldn't say of man because the city would revolt against them. And they're like, no, no, we're trying to get them to revolt against Jesus. If we answer wrong, then we're They'll revolt against us and they can't say heaven because then they'd actually have to give the authority over to Jesus that's due him and they don't want to. They want to hold on to it for themselves. They're in a tough spot. And the religious leaders, the religious leaders are, are faced with deciding who Jesus is in this moment. Who is he? Who is this guy? How dare he come in here and do these and make these claims and accusations? They're embarrassed. They're frustrated. They're angry. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening right now in the headquarters. It's going, going down. There's a crowd of people listening in. It's, 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 it's amazing and crazy to see. And Jesus is like walking into a saloon, man. He, he busts open the two doors with his pistol on his hip like, there's a new sheriff in town. I'm calling the shots. Israel, you religious elite leaders, you had your chance. We sent prophet and messenger and time and time again, and you've blown it. And then you left God no other option. He's now sending me, the Messiah, the son, to save the people once and for all from their sins because you guys were supposed to be that beacon, that hill set, or that beacon on a hill, that light on a hill, a people set aside to where God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness and reconciliation back to him can be found through you. But your time is up. There's a new authority in town. And so this is kind of the question that I think this is the question that I think they are asking is that, um, who do you think you are? Like in our language, who do you think you are? That's another way we ask it. Who do you think you are having the right to walk up in here, flip over our tables and chairs, disrupt everything that we like and we're comfortable with and we've established and say there's going to be a new method, a new way. And let me be honest, I'll be the first to say, and I'm sure most of you will agree I love reading Bible when Bible agrees with me. I love it. Yeah, oh man, I'm so glad I read that. I'm fired up, encouraged, excited. Or I'm excited when a, when a preacher or somebody gets behind a microphone on this stage and starts saying things. I'm like, yeah, get them. Mm, love it. All for it. But the first time or, or, or when Scripture conflicts what I want or what I desire or what I prefer, I don't like it. When that table and that chair in my life gets flipped over because Jesus said it in scripture, red letters, 
or a, or, a, or, a, or a teacher gets up here behind a microphone from the stage and you're like, oh, yeah, that hit me. We don't like it. And we can be like the religious elite. We can dismiss it. We can justify it. We can yell, crucify him. We don't want your authority, your truth. I want my life. I want what I want, what I've built. So who are you to come in here and say you have authority? Who are you to come in here and say that um, you have the right to change my life? Another way we say this too is like, what gives you the right to change my life? What gives you the right to tell me how to live? What gives you the right to tell me how to manage my finances, to execute my job, to engage in my relationships, to express my sexuality, to act morally and ethically in this life, to, 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 to love my spouse and do my marriage? Who gives you the right to do that? I have my own definition, my own truth, my own reality that I want for my life. And we dislike when a table and chair gets flipped by Jesus, by his word, or by someone just telling the truth from the platform. And I'm, I'm, if I'm honest, I'm there. There's teachings in my life that I have set and listened to, scriptures I have read over and over and over again, and I will dismiss and I will justify and I will try to ra uh, logically rationalize why it's okay for me in this situation. Oh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe the original word meant this. Maybe the original context and insinuation was this, so therefore it doesn't apply to me. I'm guilty, and we all are. And so what tables and chairs in our life are being rattled to where we got to give that authority over to Jesus where it's due and not be like the religious elite who'd been warned, who'd been told, who'd been instruct, instructed where they have fallen short. And, and, and the crazy thing is, is, is we question Jesus a lot probably. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? What gives you the right to say that I have to deny myself, that I have to sacrifice my preferences and, and to be born again? You see, in the Roman culture, they worship the same thing that we worship, and that is the idol of self, your happiness. Why in the world would anybody in America ever deny themselves their, ple their pleasure, their sexual orientation, their wants, their desires, their, their truth, their happiness? Why would, why would we? We're so comfortable. That's what our culture is idolized. We've put that as the greatest authority over our life is my happiness, my truth. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the new method in which you will reach the Father and have a relationship with him, it gets tension. Because we might think it's just so pure, it's so naive, I was born this way, what makes me happy? And culture embraces it and celebrates it and loves it and it becomes the highest authority, the idol in our life. And Jesus wants to flip those tables and chairs and says, no, I am the new sheriff in town. I am the new authority. I made you. I designed you. I get to decide what is true, what is right, what is wrong. You don't. And he's the ultimate authority that they are butting heads with and we will have to butt heads with and we will have to decide who's going to be the authority in your life. You, your truth, your wants, your desires, your passions. Why do I have to die to myself? We may have been born into sin, but we have to be born again out of sin through Christ. He pays for it on the cross and we are forgiven. We are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. It's a daily sacrifice and surrender because he's the one who made us, made everything. And he's the one that gets to define truth. He's the authority. And we'll hear a message sometimes and we'll go, yep, that was for me. But you know what we do with it before we get to the car? We get rid of it because if we kept it, we'd have to actually do something with it and we don't want to do that. So what is it? What are the chairs and tables in our life?
Jesus is like, this is what this entire story has been about. The fig tree, bringing light of what's happened and the reality of I am who I say that I am and I'm gonna change everything and I am the authority, I'm the way to God. That's what this whole entire story has been about, this entry, the fig tree, the, the temple, and even today. And he says, hey, your guys' time is up. There's a new thing coming, it's me. But there's hope. And if it wasn't clear enough, Jesus breaks into story time. It's like Sunday school for the religious elite. He's going to give them a Bible story. He's going to give them a parable. And it says this in Mark 12. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Parable is just a fictional story in their context. They would have understood very clearly of the, the heavenly meaning and the significance, the eternal significance in the story. They would have gotten it. And so here we go. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and he built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. The Sanhedrin are just embarrassed because of what happened. They couldn't answer the question. And now Jesus is sitting them down and lecturing them about a vineyard. You know, it just seems like, why are you telling this stupid story? But the reality is, is they would have understood. If we can go back and get the ears of the first century Jewish audience, they would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about, especially the religious elite, because they have a good understanding of Old Testament prophet and scripture. And so it'd be like this. It'd be like me telling you a story. Like, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story about a nation. Once upon a time, there was a nation. I'm not going to tell you the nation, but it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. You'd be like, well, yeah, you're talking about us. Of course. Of course. They would have gotten it so clearly. And the reason they would have gotten it is because he's quoting Isaiah 5. And so I, I encourage you to go to Isaiah 5. I'll read it real quick here. It says this, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press. Sounds exactly like what Jesus just launched into. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Sound familiar from the fig tree? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and, I will, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I command the clouds not to rain on it. And if they hadn't connected the dots yet, verse 7 the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. Oh, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice and he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. He's talking directly about them, the people, the religious elite. He starts talking about this wall, this watchtower, this wine press. They would have totally understood exactly once upon a time, the land of the free and the home of the brave. They're like, oh, this is for us. He's talking directly about us. And he gives them another illustration about the, the, the fig tree where there should have been fruit when there was leaf. Like this is a good vineyard that he's taken care of and protected and put a wall around and a watchtower and a wine press. Everything you needed, he gave. But why did it only re return bad fruit? Your time is up. He will destroy you and he'll give it to somebody else. And so Jesus launches into the story of the parable. They would have understood it because we read it from Isaiah 5, but this is what Jesus said. He has a little bit of a twist in his parable. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
But they seized him, beat him, and set him, sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and he struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, underline, many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, last of all, last resort, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because he, they knew he had spoken the parable against them. It was pretty obvious, pretty obvious. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they let him go away. They couldn't do it in broad daylight. They would have started a revolt against them, so they had to leave him alone. But they knew it was clear that he was talking directly about them. He told them about the fig tree. He, told them, he showed them what was right in the temple by up to, up, up, you know, overturning tables and chairs. He's, been, he's trying to point their attention to my teachings for the last three years of what I've been saying and what I've been trying to prepare you people for. It's about you. Your time is up. A new has come. And let me try to just summarize in our context today. I don't know if any of us work in vineyards. I don't think any of us do. I mean, I work at a vineyard, but it's a very different vineyard. Uh, none of us work in that industry, so we might not have absolute clarity. They would have understood this clearly. It was part of their culture. But um, here's the thing. Vineyards were a big deal. And what happened is this, this area, the Palestine area was very luscious to grow vineyards. And, the Ro- and under a Roman contr- control now, the nation of Israel, under their Roman government, the Romans had the money and the Romans didn't want to live out in podunk Israel where these vineyards were. So they would buy up all the land, hire the natives to work it, and they would reap the benefits of the good wine because there was nothing better at a Roman dinner party you're hosting on your balcony with some wine. Extraordinary. Where'd you get it from? My vineyard out in Jerusalem, a city out in the field in the city of Jerusalem. Like, oh, that's so cool. Like you're so popular. So they would have understood this idea of someone owning a vineyard, people working the vineyard, them wanting to come and get the best grapes so they can show off in luxury to their fellow Roman companions. They would have understood this. And so here's the context I want to try to give us today. The owner gave them everything they needed for success. In this vineyard parable illustration, God is trying to communicate, Jesus is trying to communicate, I gave you everything you needed for success. We don't know, I don't know that much about vineyards. I did some research and learned a lot this week. Um, You would build a wall around the vineyard for protection from robbers and thieves, but also from animals, wild dogs that would come in and eat, dig up, root, and destroy your vineyard. So you put up a great wall, much necessary. And then uh, next thing will be uh, the watchtower which you can see the whole entire plot of land. You can see the whole vineyard. You can see the workers. You can keep an eye out. And if the wall wasn't enough protection, the watchtower would give you extended visibility of more protection when threats would come to the watchtowers there. 
And the watchtower also provided storage when it was harvest time and you would bundle up the grapes and get them in bushels or baskets. You'd bring them in and store them in the uh, watchtower. It had shelter from the weather, thieves, robbers, animals. And then you had the wine press in the watchtower. You could actually make the wine in protection right there conveniently in your silo of storage. He gave them everything they needed. He also gave them the best seeds to plant, the best fruit to plant so that when they would harvest time, it would be better fruit. The owner of the vineyard gave them, God gave the nation of Israel everything that they needed to succeed. To bring his love, his mercy, his reconciliation, his method and model for reaching the ends of the earth through them, gave them everything that they exceeded. But they blew it. They became self-indulgent on what God had intended for their good. They perverted and self-indulgent about my truth, my pleasures, my wants, my desires. They stacked on rules and regulations. It became about their authority and their power, and the nation of Israel kind of missed it. And I think about our context today. God has given you life here in America with an incredible freedom to worship how you want to worship. There is a church on every corner. There is a Bible accessible to every man, woman, and child in every home or every business or every office on every bookshelf. There is no excuse or no reason why we cannot and should not connect with God the way it should be. We have access to that here. And maybe we've blown it. We've missed it. How? It's been so readily available. God has given you everything that you need to succeed in this life here today. But a lot of us are like the prodigal son where we take the inheritance, all the good things God wants to give and bless us, and we pervert it for our own desires, our own wants, our own agenda, and we squander it. And two things happen. Either you'll stay so far gone, your heart will be hardened and you won't come back. Or you have a choice, no matter where you are, what you've done, how you've messed up, how you've missed it, how you've blown it. You can come running back to a father who's got his arms open wide and he's running after you too, to embrace you and say, I love you. You're never too far gone. God has given us everything. We've been blessed here in America, everything we need to succeed, just like the nation of Israel did. And this parable kind of points to that. The second thing is this parable highlights is that an incredible amount of patience and persistence was given. He sent messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet. How many messages have you sit through in church? How many times have you read scripture? How many podcasts with Christian influencers have you listened to? How many worship songs have you consumed? Time and time again, he's pursuing you over and over with great patience and persistence. And Second Peter says, God is not slow in the way we understand slowness. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but have eternal life. And so how many times will you sit here and listen to a teaching or read scriptures or know what is right and create some justification and reasoning why it's not applicable to you and keep God as a secondary in your life, not the primary authority? What are you holding on to? And he'll continually chase you with great patience and persistence as he did with the nation of Israel over and over and over and over and over again. And the hard thing, and it's a hard truth to realize is some people, no matter how much they hear it, will never choose. And that's hard to fathom in my brain. But good news for you. You have free will and a choice today. And he's been pursuing you very patient and persistent from the time that you were even thought of and conceived. He's been after you. 
And will you quit pushing him away? Will you quit, quit holding on to your truth, your happiness as your primary authority and your idol and give it over to him where it's due? The third thing is that his only son is a final, final plea. He gave Jesus his, his final plea, his final begging of like, guys, wake up and see what really matters in your life. And the final thing is there's no other option but Jesus. We've tried this the original way that God intended through this nation to bless to the ends of the earth. We tried it, but we failed because we're all sinful in nature and we'll always fail. We cannot do it on our own. But Jesus comes once and for all. And that's where we end with this question that we're left with today. What or who is my cornerstone? You see, the cornerstone (laughs) that the builders will stumble over will become the stumbling block. You'll, you'll, you'll stub your toe on it and it'll hurt and you'll keep stubbing your toe on it if you don't understand what the cornerstone is and if Jesus isn't your cornerstone. It'll be the, the stone that you reject. You'll butt up against it and it'll always cause you agony or pain and regret because you just don't want to accept it. And the beautiful thing about this illustration is, again, I'm not an architect and we don't really build with stones anymore. We have great technology and advancements to technology. Back then they had hand tools. They would go extract rock chisel it with hand tools and shape it. The most crucial stone was the cornerstone. It was laid first. And if it wasn't laid right, and if it wasn't perfect and and without blemish and crack, it wouldn't allow every other stone to fit perfectly in place for a strong foundation. Cornerstone is crucial. It's got to be perfect, blameless, botchless, sinless. And that's exactly who Jesus was, the perfect cornerstone without blemish that we have to build our life on. Every other stone, every other facet of our life, our job, our finances, our sexuality, our relationships, our marriage, our our occupations, our morality, our ethical behavior and decisions, everything comes from this cornerstone of Jesus. And he very clearly says, you builders rejected it and you'll stub your toe and it'll be a stumbling block for you. But if you humble yourself and say, I'm not the greatest authority in my life. Jesus, I need you, the perfect, sinless sacrifice, the cornerstone in which my life, my foundation, my existence can be built on. Everything else will be plumb and square and in line and it'll stay up. It will not fall, it will not crumble. It'll be a strong, sturdy life with Jesus as your cornerstone. So, My question to you, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think you are, Jesus? What gives you the right to demand me denying myself and my desires and taking my cross and following you? Who is he to you? Is he the highest authority in your life that you'll surrender to and be obedient to? Or will you still hold on to one area in your life, like the rich young ruler, one thing in your life, his wealth, that he hadn't given over fully to Jesus? What is that one area? What table and chair gets rocked in your life that you don't like, but you want to hold on to it, that Jesus is asking you to give it over to him? He loves you. He's persistent. He's patient. And he wants a relationship with you. But that, that relationship comes with us denying ourselves, sacrifice, pick up your cross, and follow him. And so what will we do with that today? Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you radically love us to the point where you never give up. We're never too far gone. No matter how we've squandered the good and the blessing you've given us and 
and the and 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 everything that we have access to that uh, no matter what we've done with it, you still love us and you still pursue us and you still want a relationship with us. While we were still sinners, you died for us. Even though we were still in rebellion and blowing it, <laughs> you still came, lived the perfect life and paid the penalty for us. And I pray, Jesus, that we would accept that if we've never accepted that. And God, we would give over the authority in our life to you. You get to define what truth is. I don't. You are the highest authority in existence, not us and what we can conjure up and make. And we would realize that, we'd humble ourselves and we would surrender and we would give it all to you and we would produce good fruit in our life. We would no longer be posers or imitators saying we're good on the outside and not living the the way you say we should, but we would live authentic, genuine lives following you. Help us see it. Even when we don't have faith, help our little faith or our unbelief and help us be everything you made us to be. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.